Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. Charity criticises First Minister for turning down a series of invites to witness plight of homeless. An article by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. A charity has criticised the First Minister for turning down a series of invites to witness the scale of the homeless problem in Scotland. Glasgow-based Homeless Project Scotland, which was started back in 2018, has been calling on Nicola Sturgeon to visit their soup kitchen to witness issues for over life on the streets, but have been concerned their offers have never been taken up. The charity provides support to the city's rough sleepers and tries to accommodate them off the streets. Its soup kitchen also feeds upwards of 600 people with more than 1,000 hot meals a week under the Helenman's umbrella on Argyle Street three nights a week, bringing a lifeline to those who are homeless, vulnerable children, families and elderly. The charity last made its last call to the Nicol to the Nicola last month after founders Colin McInnes and Fraser Riddle travelled to Ten Downing Street to receive the Prime Minister's UK Points of Light Award which recognises outstanding individual volunteers and people who are making a change in their community. The charity had gone public with frustration over a myriad of unanswered invitations calling for both Nicola Sturgeon and Susan Aitken, the leader of Glasgow City Council. The charity has been seeking proper recognition by the Scottish Government and wants NMSPs to see how much of an issue homelessness is in Glasgow. It says they have invited the First Minister to witness what they do numerous times but have always been reportedly rebuffed as she is too busy. Homeless Project Scotland has taken to social media to air their concerns, saying we've invited Nicola Sturgeon to visit our soup kitchen several times, but unfortunately we have had a response had a response from a private deputy private secretary saying her diary is too busy. Why can you not come to see the suffering in Glasgow who queue up for food every night? 200 plus. Some 256 homeless people died in 2020 in Scotland, a near 20% annual rise with more than half of the facilities drug related. Official data produced by the National Records of Scotland, the NRS, reveal a death toll during the pandemic that was higher than was first thought by homeless support charities. There were 40 more deaths of homeless people in 2020 compared to 2019. And some 59% of homeless deaths in Scotland were drug-related, the figures suggested. 8% of deaths were due to circulatory diseases such as heart disease and stroke and 5% due to cancers and there were no deaths where the underlying cause was COVID-19. Two months ago, concerns were raised that Glasgow City Council had cut evening meals to hundreds of homeless people after creating secret COVID deals worth £1.6 million. 
Miss Aitken had been accused of hypocrisy over the cuts after she made a pre-council elections attack on the UK government for cutting the £20 Covid Universal Credit uplift and plunging many thousands of Glasgow families into hardship. The COVID deal was set up with the Well-Fed Scotland, a private community interest company based in Glasgow with the aim to alleviate food poverty and social isolation. The council initially said no savings had been made by removing the vital meals to up to 600 people, homeless people, in temporary accommodation. But it emerged that the council had to pay out £520,309 to well-fed for the provision of meals to homeless residents in accommodation in 2020-21 and a further £1.134 million in 2021-22. When lockdown began in March 2020, hundreds of rough sleepers were brought in off the streets to help slow the spread of coronavirus. With temporary accommodation full, many were placed in hotels, but campaigners raised concerns that B&Bs and hotels were not fit to deal with people in crisis and that consequently homeless people were losing out on access to drug and alcohol addiction services and mental health care. The Scottish Government and Glasgow City Council have been approached for comment. From the Heralds, recorded on the 13th of July 2022. Glasgow City Centre Hotel Plans Lodged. An article by Caroline Wilson. Plans have been lodged for a new hotel and conservation area of Glasgow City Centre at the site of mid-19th century former warehouse. Riverfront Property Limited Partnership wants to build an 11-storey, 174-room hotel on Oswald Street, close to the Law area of the city. The four-storey building dates from around 1844 and was placed on the at-risk register in 2013. It has been vacant for more than 20 years and was last used as a health club. The site is within the Glasgow Central Conservation Area and close to significant listed buildings, including the Category A-listed Clydeport Navigation Trust building. The developers are seeking planning permission and conservation area consent to demolish the warehouse. The Broome Law Quay was gradually extended in 1814 and again in 1831. By this time, all of the streets leading north had been laid out except James Watt Street. Originally occupied by houses, they were soon replaced by warehouses, mostly for grain and tea, and many were later converted to be used as tobacco and whisky bonds. By the early 20th century, the Broomilaw Quayside was intensively used with activity from passenger paddle steamers, as well as import and export of goods and produce, using the Clyde navigation for trade and for recreation and leisure. The architectural character of the area comprises a mixture of warehouses, terraces, squares, civic buildings, bridges and churches, and very few structures predating the late 18th century survive. In order to comply with heritage legislation, the developers must demonstrate that the hotel contributes or preserves the character of the area. If detrimental impact on the historic environment is unavoidable, it should be minimised. The current building is said to have very few internal features of architectural interest. That article, as we said, was by Caroline Wilson, senior reporter. From the Herald Scotland, recorded on the 13th of July 2022. 
COVID Scotland, Omicron BA5 is now dominant virus strain. An article by Helen McArdle, health correspondent. The Omicron BA5 variant is now the dominant strain of the COVID virus in Scotland. Public Health Scotland reports that the highly contagious sublineage accounted for 55% of the newly reported sequence cases in Scotland between June 27th and July 3rd. The figure is based on samples collected up to June 20th. Only a small number of overall positive cases undergo genomic sequencing, but the trend is in line with patterns identified internationally. PHS said the first case of BA5 had been identified in Scotland on March 14th. It was first detected in South Africa back in February and also drove a surge in cases in Portugal during May. Both BA5 and its sister sublineage, BA4, were designated as variants of concern by the UK Health Security Agency in May due to evidence of higher transmissibility compared to the previously dominant BA2 form of Omicron. PHS says, modelling undertaken by UKHSA indicated that while both lineages had a growth advantage over BA2, the previously dominant variant, this advantage was greater in BA5. The first specimen date reported for Omicron BA5 in Scotland was the 14th of March 2022, and the proportion of sequences of this lineage have have rapidly increased. The first specimen date reported from Omicron BA4 in Scotland was the 22nd of March 2022 and the proportion of sequences identified as this lineage have also increased, although less than BA5. Omicron BA5 is now the predominant variant in Scotland, surpassing Omicron BA2 and accounting for 55% of newly reported sequence cases from the 27th of June 2022 to 3rd July 2022. It comes as PHS reports that more than one in five, 20.5% of the 3,384 COVID cases picked up through testing in Scotland during the week ending July 10th were reinfections, defined as cases in individuals who last tested positive over 90 days previously. BA5 is estimated to have a growth advantage of around 13% over BA2, thanks mainly to mutations shared by BA4, which make it better equipped to evade antibodies from prior infection and or vaccination, particularly if this immunity has waned over time. Evidence also suggests that a prior Omicron infection confers comparatively little barrier against subsequent Omicron infections as new lineages spring up. As a result, repeat infections and vaccine breakthrough infections have become more common in the BA4-5 wave compared to the original Omicron and subsequent BA2 waves. Portugal has also experienced in an increase in reinfections during its BA5 wave. There is no evidence that BA5 or BA4 cause more severe disease, however. By the end of June, an estimated 1 in 17 people in Scotland had COVID, exceeding the peak of 1 in 18 during the first Omicron wave in early January. Although at that point, people in Scotland had been advised to significantly curtail their social interactions. 
That article, as we said, was written by Helen McCardle. You can tweet Helen at H-M-C-A-R-D-L-E-H-T. And she's the health correspondent. This article was read by Alistair. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 13th of July 2022, from the Voices section, Ian McWhorter, the nastiest Tory contest yet is about to get even worse, by columnist Ian McWhorter. I don't know why the Conservatives are bothering about a leadership election. They should just ask Dominic Cummings, since his compromat will likely decide who leads the Tories. Just cut out the middlemen. Mr Cummings claims to be in possession of devastating intelligence about the sex lives of unnamed leadership candidates. It would be very Westminster, he tweeted, for Boris to get the bullet because of lies of her sex slash groping, only to be replaced by someone who actually who's actually SH expletive ING their SPAD. A SPAD is a special advisor, a non-civil servant brought in to deal with the media and policy. Mr Cummings corrected himself later by saying that more than one prominent leadership is having inappropriate sexual relations with a member of staff. They know who they are. This is already the nastiest leadership election anyone can remember and this has hardly started yet. Not so much wacky races as mud wrestling in a sewer. Mucky memos are circulating in the fetid watering holes of Westminster, including, we are told, allegations of drugs and prostitutes, bondage, sadomasochism. Tory sources have told the Times that pictures are available too. These may not be in his possession, but the disgraced former PM senior advisor, Dom Cummings, is a compromised king. He was responsible for blowing the whole Partygate scandal sky high, after he mentioned in his newsletter the infamous Bring Your Own Booze Party, organised during lockdown by Martin Reynolds, the top civil servant in number 10. Mr Cummings went on to provide a running commentary on the downfall of the shopping trolley, as he called Boris Johnson, nudging the hacks towards other infractions of the law. It didn't take long before tales of birthday parties, ABBA sing-alongs and shopping bags of booze emerged into the public domain as journalists and civil service sources got to work. He is not content now that the shopping trolley has ended up in the canal. He has already intervened in the Tory leadership race, saying at least three current candidates would be worse than Boris. At least one is more insane than Truss. Mr Cunnings claimed that the Foreign Secretary is mad as a box of snakes, so it is intriguing to speculate who could be more insane. Could it be Penny Mordaunt, the Trade Minister, who famously included multiple reference to the word C, expletive, selected K in a common speech. The Attorney General, Suella Beaverman, described as F, explicitly deleted, useless by a Cabinet colleague. Or the Omnigaf Transport Secretary, Garant Shapps. Now you may ask, why am I giving so much credence to speculation, rumours and gossip from a disgraced former member of a disgraced former Prime Minister's staff? Didn't Mr Cummings break lockdown rules himself with his famous trip to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight? Why should we bother with the muck he is now spreading across Whitehall? Well, there is a very good reason, which is that he knows where the bodies are buried, and as he exhumes them, he's already deciding who can and cannot serve. Mr Cummings has said that all candidates should have to declare a 
a DOM slash non-DOM tax exempt status, including partners' holdings of them, or in any offshore trusts. He went on that it was totally unacceptable to have another PM where voters don't know these facts about tax avoidance and they're open to blackmail, presumably not by Mr Cummings. The Chancellor, Natim Zahawi, who has called for 20% cuts in state spending, has already had to deny he's under investigation over his financial affairs. He has promised that he'll make his future tax returns public, but seems unwilling to reveal his past financial arrangements. The former Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, has equivocated, to put it mildly, over his own tax status in previous years, and is reported to have enjoyed non-DOM tax status when he was an MP working in the Treasury. Both their campaigns have stalled in the past days. Of course, Akshata Murthy, the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak's billionaire wife, was also revealed to have enjoyed non-domicile status, meaning she didn't have to pay millions in UK taxes. She now does. Mr Sunak himself was found to have been in possession of a green card, allowing him to work in the United States. However, these embarrassing revelations almost certainly did not come from Mr Cummings. He thinks highly of the former Chancellor. Other shadowy figures seeking to emulate Mr Cummings have evidently been trying to destroy the former Chancellor's leadership bid. A member of the Home Secretary, Priti Patel's staff, was revealed to have been forwarding an attack memo targeting Mr Sunak for imposing the highest burden of taxes since 1950 and yet wasting billions on fraudulent Covid loans. Further stories emerged that Mr Sunak had no working class friends, wears £300 trainers and is a treacherous bee exploited. So why has politics turned so decidedly nasty? Well, one reason might be that we are only now hearing more of the unsavoury stuff that goes on in Westminster. Ask any former minister and they'll tell you they were constantly amazed while in office that the press failed to spot many scandals. One that is often cited is the former Tory PM John Major's extramarital relationship with Edwina Curry. Mr Major would want to make speeches lecturing on the nation and family values. Had this affair been known, he might have shared Mr Johnson's fate. There used to be a buffer between politicians' personal lives and the public domain. That is largely gone in the era of social media. With Twitter and other outlets, disaffected individuals like Mr Cummings can spread stories that would probably not have been reported fully in the past. The press would have worried about defamation actions. But since Mr Cummings has first-hand knowledge, he can spread the poison with impunity. Politicians are fatally drawn to Twitter, which they should leave well alone. Only last week, Ms Morton was inveigled into a Twitter spat about trans rights, which, was, which could mean that much of her leadership campaign will be about a definition of a woman. But social media isn't going away, and neither is Mr Cummings. Politics will never be the same again. And that was an opinion piece by E. McWhorter. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the news section, Downing Street admits Boris Johnson oversaw nasty, misogynist culture as Prime Minister, by David Ball. Downing Street has admitted Boris Johnson oversaw a nasty, misogynist culture under his leadership.
Number 10 has also insisted that the outgoing Prime Minister has carried a can for the bad behaviour of others over the Partygate scandal, that saw Mr Johnson and Rishi Sunak hit with fixed penalty notices by the police. An ITV documentary exposing fresh revelations about Mr Johnson's leadership will reveal that Downing Street blamed former aides for the culture at number 10. A number 10 spokesperson said, Previous aides, who have devoted their lives to bringing down the PM, did indeed preside over a nasty misogynist culture. Downing Street has been, been a much better place without them. In Tonight, Boris Johnson, The Rise and Fall, a source who worked in number 10 claims that Mr Johnson's arrival in Downing Street brought with it a very masculine culture, you know, lads down the pub. They added, if you were a female in that sort of zone, it's actually quite uncomfortable to work in. Responding, Downing Street also told the programme, the vast majority of the press office are women, roughly half of the private office, and indeed most of the main teens in number 10. ITV Tonight has approached former aides of the Prime Minister for comment. The source, who worked closely with the Prime Minister for a number of years, also claimed that Mr Johnson was completely disorganised, adding that he would never read his notes. He added, First thing in the morning, Boris Johnson would turn up two hours late. His hair would be wet. He'd have his zip undone or his shirt hanging out. He'd just be a complete mess all the time. Speaking anonymously, the former staffer told tonight there were way more parties inside number 10 during lockdown than were revealed during the Partygate scandal. He said, I think the Prime Minister himself had a few more than what has been reported, privately in his flat as well. In response to the programme, number 10 told ITV, the Metropolitan Police carried out a thorough investigation into parties at number 10, issuing the PM with only one FPN. He has, to a large extent therefore, carried the can for the bad behaviour of others, including some of his most fierce and shameless opponents. And that piece was by David Ball. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the news section, Rape accused to have fingerprints taken to prove identity in extradition case by Dan Barker. A man claiming mistaken identity who is fighting extradition to the United States on a rape charge is to have his fingerprints taken in a bid to prove who he is. US prosecutors have said that the 35-year-old, who claims to be called Arthur Knight, is actually called Nicholas Rossi and is wanted in Utah. The man appeared at Edinburgh Sheriff Court on Thursday via video link, where Sheriff Norman McFadgen said his prints would be taken by Police Scotland in the interest of justice and as a belt and braces measure. The suspect, who is said to have faked his own death and fled to Scotland, has been linked to a number of attacks on other women across the United States. Throughout the 74-minute hearing, the suspect, who denied that he was Nicholas Rossi when asked for the start of proceedings, repeatedly asked for oxygen. Representing himself, the man said, I can't think properly or address my argument because I don't have any oxygen and I have not for nearly 36 hours and I'm hypoxic. But Sheriff McFadgen said, I've been told your saturation levels have been tested and they're normal. The suspect then told the court that they were using a Poundland oximeter, a medical device which measures the amount of oxygen in blood. The suspect, who was in a wheelchair, 
was last week charged with threatening two hospital medics at Glasgow Cuny- Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. Procurator Fiscal jo- Julie Clark told the court he, ha- he has had his fingerprints taken in relation to that case, but it was the opinion of the ward advocate that they should not be used for the extradition matter, so another sample must be provided. The man said he would agree to providing his prints, but said he does not want Police Scotland to be the ones doing so. Sheriff McFadgen said the warrant was granted for fingerprints to be taken by officers from Police Scotland at Her Majesty's Prison Edinburgh. I will make arrangements for officers to attend for that purpose. He also said the next hearing of the extradition case will be adjourned until August 11th after after the hearing at Glasgow Sheriff Court into the allegations he threatened two medics. The man was remanded, remanded in custody. Separately, US authorities charged Fugitive Rossi with another count of rape. The Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office said a no bail warrant had been issued for the arrest of Rossi and gave several aliases, including Arthur Knight. District Junior Attorney Sim Gill said, We are working with the Utah County Attorney's Office and the US Attorney on the extradition of Nicholas Rossi from Scotland. The presumption of innocence applies. Nicholas Rossi remains innocent to proven guilty in a court of law. And that piece was by Dan Barker. For the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, in the news section, Glasgow Bar to close immediately until working conditions are improved, by Nicole Mitchell. A Glasgow Bar is set to close until working conditions are improved. Broadcasts will close with immediate effect until union bosses are satisfied following a frank and open meeting between five members of staff, their Unite representatives and owner Paul Cardow. It comes after workers at the Soccer Hill Street venue submitted a collective grievance to Mr Cardow on Tuesday last week containing a catalogue of serious claims regarding working conditions. Within the six-page document, there were claims that workers have been forced to deal with biohazards including human faeces, bouncers reportedly failing to ban predatory customers from the premises, and understaffed shifts that have led to staff burnout mentally and physically. Now, following the meeting yesterday, which lasted more than four hours, it has been agreed that the bar will close for an unspecified amount of time to carry out improvement works on the building. It has been confirmed that staff will be on full pay during the closure. A spokesperson for Unite said, After more than four hours of intense negotiations, our union reps at Broadcast have come to an important agreement with the owner, Paul Cardow, which should ensure vast improvements in the venue for all workers. The venue will now temporarily close while extensive refurbishment is carried out to ensure health and, issue- health and issues are fully resolved. All workers are to be paid in full during this time. We also have an agreement that all outstanding wages, holiday pay and sick pay will be paid to all workers as soon as is feasible. Once our members are satisfied with the progress, the venue will open. We hope to work with the the owners to make broadcast the best live events venue in Glasgow for workers, terms and conditions. A spokesperson for broadcast said, We had a frank and open meeting with five representatives of Broadcast Union and their Unite representatives and we have agreed on a positive pathway to resolve their concerns. Broadcast will close with immediate effect to carry out improvement works on the building 
and will reopen when all parties are satisfied that working conditions have improved. Urgent steps are also being taken to resolve the other issues raised by staff. We hope the closure will not be for a prolonged period, but we cannot yet say when it will reopen. Staff will be paid their wages during this time. And that article was by Nicole Mitchell. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 14th of July 2022. From the news section, M8 Helen Street, man hit by car on M8 in serious condition. By Emma Sabiak, digital reporter. A man has been seriously injured after being hit by a car on the M8 in an incident which saw the major road close during morning rush hour. The 22-year-old was struck by a red Toyota on the eastbound lane, nearby Junction 24, around 8.28am on Tuesday. After emergency services were called to the Helen Street Junction, the man was taken to Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. His condition has been described as serious by hospital staff. The 51-year-old driver of the Toyota did not require medical treatment. Two eastbound lanes remained closed for just under two hours. Sergeant Ryan McCauley of the Road Policing Unit said, Our inquiries are ongoing to establish the exact circumstances surrounding this incident and I would appeal to any witnesses or anyone with information who has not yet spoken to officers to contact 101 quoting reference 0557 of 12th of July. I would also like to thank the public for their patience while officers dealt with this incident. And that report was by Emma Sabliak. From the Herald, Thursday the 14th of July 2022, from the comment section. Neil Mackay. If Afghan death squad claims are proven, the SAS must be disbanded and those guilty jailed for life for war crimes. How long have we been learning of such atrocities? Since I was a child in the 1970s? Since my parents were children in the 1950s? Since my grandparents were children in the 1900s? Britain's armed forces have a long, shameful and rarely discussed history of perpetrating war crimes with impunity. Let's limit our time frame and go back only as far as Britain's Boer War concentration camps, where thousands of women and children perished. But that was the 19th century, surely, the flag-waving, uniform-worshipping exceptionalists cry. Okay, let's start in the 1920s, with Britain's state-sanctioned brutality during the Irish War of Independence. There's the original Bloody Sunday, where armed forces, including the infamous Black and Tans, opened fire on civilians during a Gaelic football match at Dublin's Croke Park, killing 14 people. Later, In 1920, soldiers and black and tans burned cork in a barbarous act of reprisal. Maybe that's still too far back for some. Let's move to the 1950s and Kenya's Mama Rebellion, where British soldiers routinely tortured and sexually assaulted prisoners. Victims had their ears sliced off, holes bored in their eardrums. They were flogged to death, set alight. Eric Griffiths-Jones, the Attorney General of the British Administration in Kenya, described the treatment of detainees as distressingly reminiscent of conditions in Nazi Germany. Still too far back. Then head over to Northern Ireland from the 1970s to the 1990s. Nobody surely needs reminded about the other Bloody Sunday, where paratroopers shot innocent people in the streets of Derry. There was internment without trial, 
torture, and perhaps most appallingly of all, the use of terrorist death squads as proxy assassinations for the British state. The list goes on, but the stomach weakens at recording such acts of inhumanity by uniformed representatives of the British people who disgrace the very notion of democracy and freedom. Today, there's surprise and disbelief that British special forces are accused of running murder gangs in Afghanistan. The claims are horribly familiar to anyone with a grasp of history. SAS soldiers repeatedly killed detainees and unarmed civilians during security operations. That's the long and short of the allegations. One unit may have unlawfully killed 54 people in just six months. There are claims that the former head of Special Forces, General Sir Mark Carlton Smith, was briefed about allegations but didn't pass evidence to the Royal Military Police, even after murder investigations began. Carlton Smith went on to become head of the army. He stepped down last month. Individuals who served with the SAS unit say they witnessed unarmed people being killed. They also claim that drop weapons were used, that AK-47s planted to justify killings. The BBC's investigation, SAS Death Squads Exposed, a British war crime, raises fundamental questions about the nature of our democracy. How can we call ourselves a democracy if our military carries out atrocities? Aren't we committed to human rights, liberty and the rule of law? Apparently not if some of our most elite soldiers are a hallmark of Britain. And the armed forces do represent the nation. We're told repeatedly the military represents the best of Britain. Well, the military, and clearly often, also represents the worst of Britain. The former head of the British Armed Services... General Lord Richards says if he were still in charge, he'd order a thorough investigation. The Ministry of Defence, however, says no new evidence has been presented and accuses the BBC of jumping to unjustified conclusions. Sir Howard Morrison, a former judge at the International Criminal Court, says at the very least a judge-led inquiry should be established. A judge-led inquiry investigated similar allegations against Australian special forces. If allegations against the SAS are proven, the only just course of action must be the instant disbandment of the regiment and life sentences for anyone found guilty of war crimes. Any other organisation found responsible for such offences would cease to exist, so the same goes for the SAS. Like police officers, soldiers carry ultimate power and authority. To breach that is to debase the nation. In truth, the army, like police officers, politicians and the ju judiciary, must be held to higher account than the rest of us. If ordinary citizens carry out grave crimes, we don't do so while representing the British state, we don't do so with the power of the British state behind us. However, the British government has been trying its damnedest to make sure that the armed forces are indeed held to a lesser standard of accountability than ordinary citizens. There was fury in Northern Ireland when it emerged Boris Johnson's government wanted to ban prosecution of Irish army veterans for crimes committed during the Troubles. And isn't the Troubles a very British understated way of describing an ethnic civil war in which the UK played such a gruesome dark role? The Johnson government also wanted to exempt British soldiers from prosecution for crimes including torture and genocide. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, an ex-soldier, said the bill would end 
that quotes the vexatious hounding of veterans and our armed forces by ambulance chasing lawyers motivated not by the search for justice but by their own crude financial enrichment. Close quotes. The assault on decency and justice is profound. Amnesty described the British government's troubled legacy bill as giving murderers and those responsible for torture a free pass. A uniform isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. Those who put on a uniform to represent this country must, like police officers, be of the highest calibre. They must be the best amongst us. But like the police, the army is disgraced by too many who serve within its ranks. For generations, the army and its government masters have sought to sweep crime after crime under the carpet, all the while pushing false narratives, riddled with glib and ugly patriotism, that the military is beyond reproach and above criticism. That's a lie. If there's anything decent left to be salvaged from the wreckage of Britain today, then let's start with our sense of justice and ensure those in uniform are held publicly to account. No more cover-up for the boys in camouflage. This article was by Neil Mackay. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, published on the 15th of July, 2022. Greenock, body found in search for man missing from Inverclyde Hospital. An article by Emma Sabchik. A body has been found in the search for a man who went missing from an Inverclyde hospital. Stephen McFarlane, 32, was last seen on CCTV within Inverclyde Royal Hospital in Greenock around 2am on July 7th. The body was found just off Inverkip Road in the same town around 5.45pm on Thursday, July 14th, a week after he was last seen. While he is yet to be formally identified, the family of Stephen McFarlane has been informed. The web article says here, Police Scotland has now confirmed his family has been found after. I suspect this is an error. A spokesperson for the force said the death is currently being treated as unexplained and a report will be submitted to the Procurator Fiscal in due course. The article was by Emma Sabchek. From the Herald Scotland, recorded on the 15th of July 2022, Met Office issues Amber Extreme Heat Weather Warning for Scotland. An article by Carlo Simone, who you can tweet at C-S-I-M-O-N-E-J-O-U-R-N-O, and he's the SEO journalist. The Met Office has issued an amber extreme heat weather warning for Scotland on Monday, July 18th and Tuesday, July 19th. This warning impacts mainly southern areas of Scotland, including Dumfries, Peebles, Wigton and Kelso. In a statement, the Met Office said a hot spell is likely to develop from Sunday, likely peaking early next week, leading to widespread impacts on people and infrastructure. In terms of what to expect on Monday and Tuesday, the Met Office listed a number of things, including Adverse health effects are likely to be experienced by those vulnerable to extreme heat. Government advice is that 999 services should be used in emergencies only. Seek advice from 111 if you need non-emergency health service. The wider population are likely to experience some adverse health effects, including sunburn or heat exhaustion, dehydration, nausea or fatigue, and other heat-related illnesses. 
Some changes in working practices and daily routines are likely to be required. An increased chance that some heat-sensitive systems and equipment may fail, potentially leading to localised power cuts and the loss of other services to some homes and businesses. More people are likely to visit coastal areas, lakes and rivers, leading to an increased risk of water safety incidents. Some delays to road, rail and air travel are possible, with potential for welfare issues for those who experience prolonged delays. Red extreme heat weather warning issued in England. Alongside Scotland being issued an amber extreme heat weather warning, some parts of England were issued with an even more concerning red heat warning. The Met Office described it as an exceptional hot spell on Monday and Tuesday leading to widespread impacts on people and infrastructure. This is mainly across central England, with parts of London, Essex and Yorkshire also included. As we said, that article was by Caro Simone from the Herald Scotland, recorded on the 15th of July 2022. More dates confirmed for a UK-wide rail strike as RMT members walk out. An article by Emma Sabjek, and you can contact the Digital Reporter on Twitter at E-M-A-S-A-B-L-J-A-K. Further dates have been announced for a nationwide train strike as workers at Network Rail and Fortreen train operators are to walk out in August. Members of Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, the RMT, will walk out on August 18th and 20th. The union previously confirmed industrial action will also take place on July 27th. It comes amid a worsening dispute over jobs, pay and working conditions between RMT and Network Rail, which own the UK's rail tracks, stations and signals. Around 40,000 workers across Network Rail are expected to walk out. While ScotRail has indicated an end to its emergency timetable later this month, the strikes are likely to cause significant disruption in Scotland as well as other parts of the UK. RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch said the rail industry and the government need to understand that this dispute will not simply vanish. They need to get serious about providing an offer on pay which helps deal with the cost of living crisis, job security for our members and provides good conditions at work. Recent proposals from Network Rail fell well well short on pay and on safety around maintenance work. And the train operating companies have not even made us a pay offer in recent negotiations. Now Grant Sharps, the Transport Secretary, has abandoned his forlorn hopes for the job of Prime Minister. He can now get back to his day job and help sort this mess out. We remain open for talks, but we will continue our campaign until we reach a negotiated settlement. Andrew Haynes, chief executive of Network Rail, said by announcing even more strike dates, the RMT has dropped any pretense that this is about reaching a deal. It's clear the best interests of passengers and our staff are taking second place to the union's boss's political campaign. When will the rail strikes take place? July 27th, RMT members employed by Network Rail and 14 retail companies will strike. This will include guards and signalling staff. July 30th, train drivers who are members of Aslev Union from eight train operators will strike over pay. August 18th and 20th, further dates for RMT strikes if dispute is not resolved. 
The train operators involved in RMT union strikes are Chiltern Railways, Cross Country Trains, Greater Anglia, LNER, East Midlands Railway, C2C, Great Western Railway, Northern Trains, South Eastern, South Western Railway, Trans Pennine Express, Avanti West Coast, West Midland Trains and GTR, including Gatwick Express. And that article, as we said, was by Emma Sabchik and you can tweet her on E-M-A-S-A-B-L-J-A-K. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 15th of July 2022, from the sports section, Rangers brace for Bassey bids as Brighton and Ajax on £25 million transfer collision course by David Irvin. Rangers are reportedly braced for a bidding war over Calvin Bassey with Ajax and Brighton on a £25 million transfer collision course. Nigeria International Bassey, 22, was a standout performer for the Ibrox side last season both on the domestic and European stage. The defender, who is comfortable at left-back or centrally, also earned rave reviews for his showings for Nigeria before the summer break. Yesterday, the Telegraph claimed Ajax boss Alfred Schroeder is very charmed by Bassey, having already spoken extensively by telephone. It's also reported Premier League side Brighton have an interest in Bassey, with neither side lacking funds for a major transfer investment. And Sky Sports claim initial talks over a transfer move have been held by both clubs. Should Bassey move on, then it will net Rangers a massive profit with the club signing the player for a modest cross-border compensation fee from Leicester back in 2020. The Daily Record claim Rangers are demanding a fee of around £25 million to allow Bassey to move on this summer. Ajax reportedly view Bassey as a potential replacement for Lissandro Martinez, who is thought to be on the brink of a move to Manchester United. Discussing Bassey's situation during pre-season, Giovanni van Brunker said, You never know. Of course, the potential he has is big. The potential also that a team will notice he has. He came in, he is very sharp. He's very energetic and happy. I think it is good for him to keep going, keep going, and to give everything he has to this team, which he has done so far really well. I had the same. I came here in 98 after the World Cup and had three good years with Rangers, and then I moved on to Arsenal and to the Premier League. I think this is also a path that many players will do. If you see the squad, Joe, Aribo, played for three years and we've reached a level now where I think he can reach another level being involved with the strongest league in the world. We have Glenn Kamara as well, who is talented and came here. That is what you want as well as what also will, will, what being a successful team in Scotland brings with it. I am more than happy to help Calvin in his development and to make sure he comes to reach a level where everyone will say, well, the best thing for him is to move on. They are all winners. The club is a winner because we developed him and we will get a transfer fee. And the player as well, he will have a fantastic time here and then move on. And that article was by David Irvin. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 15th of July 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Issue of the day is The Fringe Too Expensive for Performers by Cara Kennedy, trainee reporter. It is often hoped to be the beginning of a great career, and while the Edinburgh Festival Fringe has catapulted many acts to fame, for others it has left them in with debt and misery. 
Now it's been reported in the Guardian that some have pledged to avoid it altogether. What's going on? 75 years ago, the Fringe began as an accessible and affordable festival for all to enjoy. Over the last few years, more and more reports of soaring accommodation costs have led people to claim that the festival is pricing itself out of existence. William Stone and BBC New Comedy Awards finalist in 2018 said earlier this year that accommodation prices in the city during the festival are a scam and had created a culture of exclusion for those from poorer backgrounds who cannot afford to spend a month in Edinburgh. Why is it so expensive? Lauded as one of the top cultural events in the world, the Fringe brings more than one million visitors, artists and performers to Scotland's capital every year. But this means the landlords also recognise that they can capitalise on this. There are now claims that extortionate accommodation costs are pricing out acts who want to appear. The Sunday Times reported that one three-bedroom flat in the city was being advertised for more than £10,000 a month, with one new town four-bedroom house priced at more than £27,000. Where have previous performers been staying? In a piece for The Guardian, Rose Johnson mentioned that she'd performed at the Fringe eight times, when she could finally afford a room of her own, it didn't have a window or a door, she recalls. The landlord had just put a bed in a cupboard. Fellow comic Jack Evans had a similar situation. The first fringe I did, I slept in the linoleum of a kitchen floor. Others told their stories of sleeping in sofas or shared beds. One comedian even survived the month living in a tent. What does this mean? Well, performers attend in the hope of becoming the next Fleabag, Mighty Bush or Garth Marenghi. Ultimately, if something doesn't change, it will mean that only performers from wealthy backgrounds can pitch up at the fringe. Landlords let out buildings for performances and accommodation, but no one regulates costs or conditions, meaning they can charge extortionate prices in exchange for bad living conditions, and it isn't only the accommodation that seems to be extortionate. A 2018 Fringe Society survey found workers were paid below the minimum wage. By Cara Kennedy, Herald Scotland recorded on... Friday 15th of July 2022 Arts and Entertainments Poem The Great Stariski by Rab Wilson by Herald Magazine Ayrshire poet Rab Wilson introduces today's choice. Johnny Stariski was in charge of the powder magazine brackets supply of explosives for blasting purposes underground close brackets at the Barony Colliery Auchinleck in the mid late 1970s early 80s when I worked there. His family emigrated to Scotland before the First World War, when there was a huge influx of Poles to Scotland. His family had been boot and shoemakers. Johnny was of short stature, but possessed of a marvellous physique. In the 1960s, he'd followed the famous Charles Atlas bodybuilding course, and was also a champion highboard diver. These attributes no doubt played a part when Johnny did his famous handstand in the top girder of the Barony Colliery A-frame at Auchinleck. Brackets, now a monument to the Ayrshire coal mining industry, close brackets. I have a filmed conversation with Johnny where he tells his story of this remarkable happening. It's this actual event that's celebrated in my poem, The Great Stariski. The Great Stariski, a legend of the barony colliery. The Great Stariski marks his entrance bow, poised on the crossbeam of the vast A-frame. The Ablin sees imaginary crowds, Gopping at his death divine stunts. Mares a hundred feet up in the air, the spider's wab a safety net is strung, to south him fray and socked oblivion. The great Stariski looks to all the arts, sick magic tricks depend upon their ritual. 
and curtly bobs to each pint of the compass, to the north Ben Lomond's silhouette, to the west Goat Fell on Arran's Isle, to the east of Yont Muirkirk, Cairn Table, to the south Sweet Afton's Blonny Glen. The great Starisky burrows in pirouettes, then to admiring glances fray a blow. Sing gang tapsel tirry, heelster gowdy, stones on his horns, disdain for the risks, and locks out lud in life affirming joy, at a' the wee black specks down on the grun. The great Starisky balanced on his girder, seems tentless o' his parlous circumstance, up here he's free, can rax and touch the heavens, and feel the wind and rain upon his face, the great Starisky leading within the moment, tax in his queer inversion o' the world. Sign with some skilly dancers, graceful mien, Lichley's down as a saft as thistle doon, Dick's doon his story, creasy over alls, Sets at a jaunty sclen his old pit helmet, Recoups his yardly equilibrium, Descends the ladder and his mortal ends again. By Rab Wilson, Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday 14th of July 2022, Arts and Entertainments, The Celts, a Skeptical History by Simon Jenkins, Book Review, by Alistair Mabbitt. The Celts, A Skeptical History, Simon Jenkins, Profile, £16.99. Simon Jenkins isn't the first to have argued that the word Celt is a misnomer, but he's probably been the most polemical about it. In line with the Celtosceptic tendency which took off in the early 90s, his position is that there never was a people or language called Celtic and that lumping together Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall, Brittany and the Isle of Man as the Celtic nations is a romantic fantasy unsupported by evidence. It's a myth Jenkins wants to put to rest because, he says, notions of Celticism continue to fuel many of the prejudices and misconceptions that divide the people of the British Isles to this day. He sets out to debunk the belief that a central European people called the Celts populated the British Isles in the 2nd or 1st millennium BC, only for those living in the eastern side to be overcome by German invaders who imposed Anglo-Saxon on them, and obliterated all traces of Celtic culture. What really happened, Jenkins claims, was that the western and eastern inhabitants arrived at their separate languages, independently of any population movement those in the west and north adopting the proto-Celtic Indo-European tongue of international trade, which was not rooted in any specific culture. As he puts it, there were no Celts, only sociable sailors. This is the precursor to an exhaustive and at times exhausting history of the relationships between the constituent countries of the British Isles from pre-Roman times to the present. There's no denying that it's comprehensive and informative, but one does feel impatient for Jenkins to get back to his core theme, how the kingdoms in the eastern side of the country were unified as the dominant nation of England, while the so-called Celtic nations showed no inclination to cohere into a collective entity that could challenge English supremacy. The idea that they might have a common heritage only arose in the 17th century, with a second wave of Celticism following 200 years later. Both ridiculously romanticised visions of bardic rites and druidic robes, later dismissed by the Gallic League, as Protestants playing at pagans. In the absence of a genuine tribe called the Celts and the inability of the Celtic nations to present a united front, Jenkins looks upon the efforts of Ireland, Scotland and Wales to assert their national identities and find them somewhat silly and hollow, brackets, and a hindrance to his preferred devolution strategy of radical federalism, close brackets. But the Celtosceptic case is not as cut and dried as Jenkins makes out here, 
at least one academic, the University of Aberystwyth's Simon Rodway, has taken him to task for some highly debatable conclusions, and even if it was, the devolved nations don't actually need shared Celtic roots to legitimise their aspirations. Having grumbled at length about the incomprehensibility and obscurantism of Irish Gaelic, the man whose aim was supposedly to dispel divisive prejudices boils his argument down into an anecdote about a meeting between Lloyd George and De Valera in 1921. It was said that the letter formally addressed Lloyd George in Irish in the absence of an interpreter. Lloyd George duly replied to him in Welsh, leaving De Valera baffled in turn. We thus glimpse the spectacle of the elected leaders of the two principal peoples of the British Isles, each addressing the other in a Celtic language which he could not understand. It's a good story, but making it a metaphor for present-day devolved politics loads it with more weight than it can support. By Alistair Mabbitt. The Herald, Tuesday the 19th of July 2022. News. MSPs call for new maximum temperature law in the workplace. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. Politicians and unions have called for new maximum temperature laws in the workplace. Scotland is sweltering today with the mercury expected to hit the mid-30s. South of the border, the Met Office has already recorded 31.1 C in Charlwood, Surrey, the hottest temperature ever recorded in the UK. There is currently no law in the UK stipulating the maximum temperature of a workplace. The TUC has said that nobody should be expected to work somewhere hotter than 30 degrees or 27 degrees if their work is strenuous. Meanwhile, the GMB union said the maximum temperature should be closer to 25, with staff allowed to wear cooler clothes and take extra breaks. Though employment law is reserved to Westminster, Willie Rennie has filed a parliamentary motion in support of a top heat which urges Scottish ministers to raise this issue with their UK government counterparts with a view to placing this on a legal footing. He said, unfortunately, high temperatures are only going to become more common, so the faster we think about adaption, the better. High temperatures are clearly a concern for workers and workplace representatives alike. They lead to more accidents and falling productivity, so reducing them can be a win-win. Introducing a maximum workplace temperature and a duty for bosses to take action to keep their workers cool would be a sensible and humane step. From increasing ventilation to moving staff away from sources of heat, There are simple steps which can be taken to make workplaces a more pleasant place. I would like to see Scottish ministers take this issue up with their UK counterparts to see what can be done to give this legal force. Ross Greer from the Greens said the maximum temperature was an idea whose time had come. He added, the temperatures we are seeing this week should not be normal but they are sadly likely to become just that as the effects of the climate emergency are made clear. All employers are required to provide a safe working environment. If they are unwilling to do so, their workers should be protected from extreme heat by the law. It shouldn't take government to force employers into protecting their staff though. 
Organisations should be taking steps now to mitigate the worst effects of the heat, including by seriously considering whether workers need to travel into their office at all, or if their work can either be done from home or paused without any loss of pay. The scorching heat we're seeing right now is not a one-off. Unfortunately, as we look to the future, these sweltering conditions are likely to become more common. A maximum working temperature is now clearly essential in an era of regular heat waves. Our climate is changing. It's time for workers' rights to do the same. Guidance from the Health and Safety Executive, HSE, says workplaces should ideally be at least 16C or 13C if the job is mostly physical. Responding to the call for a legal maximum, an HSC spokesperson said there is no maximum workplace temperature because every workplace is different. Responsibility to make workplaces safe and healthy lies with employers. Workplace temperature is a hazard that comes with legal obligations for employers like other hazards. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The Herald, Tuesday the 19th of July 2022. News. UK government confident of victory in NDREF 2 court fight. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The Supreme Court is to proceed to a full hearing to examine the Scottish Government's bid to hold an independence referendum without the consent of ministers in London. A plea by the UK Government to have the case thrown out at the preliminary stage because it is premature has been refused. Instead, the justices will now consider this argument at the same time as they examine whether or not Holyrood can hold a vote. Last month, the First Minister stunned MSPs when she revealed that she had asked Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain to request a ruling from the Justices on the legality of the Scottish Parliament staging its own vote without the agreement of Westminster. However, last week, Lord Stuart of Durliton, the UK Government's Advocate General, asked the court to dismiss the Scottish Law Officer's reference. He said that by seeking to establish whether a referendum bill is within the Parliament's devolved competence before that bill has passed, would raise important legal questions which cut across the statutory process. In a reply sent to both sides and obtained by both the National and the Telegraph, the Supreme Court said judges would consider whether the request was premature at the same time as examining the issue of whether Holyrood can hold an independence referendum. The court has told the Scottish and UK governments to submit legal papers setting out their cases by August the 9th. Judges will then rule on whether to hear the case orally or not. In a statement, the Supreme Court said there were two issues to consider. First, whether the court can or should accept the reference. And second, if so, how it should answer the question the Lord Advocate has referred to it.
To answer these questions, the court said it would need to consider the circumstances giving rise to the reference and the substance of the Lord Advocate's question. The court therefore decided that it should hear argument on both issues at a single hearing in the interests of justice and the efficient disposal of the proceedings. UK government sources told The Telegraph they remained quite relaxed and very confident they will triumph in the court case. Ian Blackford, the SNP's Westminster leader, welcomed the news. He told The National, I'm glad to hear the Supreme Court are not going to be browbeaten by a UK government that are trying to stop democracy from taking place. In the end, we will prevail. Let's wait and see what happens. Setting out her route map to independence in June, the First Minister said she intends to hold a second referendum on October the 19th next year, if the UK Supreme Court says she has the power to do so. The First Minister said that if the court refused, it would be the fault of Westminster legislation and she would fight the next general election as a de facto referendum on the single issue of independence. If the SNP won a majority of votes cast, it would regard it as a mandate to open independence negotiations with London. A spokesperson for the Scottish Government said, whether the reference is accepted, how long it takes to determine, which matters the court considers, and when and what judgment is arrived at are all for the court to determine. The reference is now before the Supreme Court and the court should be allowed to fulfil its function. A UK government spokesperson said, we appreciate the Supreme Court dealing with our application quickly. We will proceed to prepare our written case on the preliminary points we have noted and on the substantive issue to the timetable set out by the court. On the question of legislative competence, the UK government's clear view remains that a bill legislating for a referendum on independence would be outside the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 18th of July 2022, from the sports section, Aaron Moy closing in Celtic move after turning down English Championship interest by Aidan Smith. Aidan Moy is closing in on a move to Celtic after turning down options in the English Championship. The former St Mirren midfielder has not played football since January after exiting Chinese Super League giant Shanghai. But now Moy looks set to line up with fellow countrymen Ange Postelikoglu as he gears up for an important few months ahead of the World Cup in November. The ex-Brighton and Huddersfield man is hopeful that a move to the Scottish Champions will give him valuable game time to stake his place for the Qatar tournament. Moe's move has been widely reported and it is understood that he has turned down English Championship's interest in flavour of the hoops. And that article was by Aidan Smith and read to you today by me, Ian. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 18th of July 2022, from the sports section, Cameron Smith earns Jack Nicholas praise after matching his feet with open win. 
Jack Nicholas has welcomed Cameron Smith into their exclusive club of two, following the Australian's stunning open triumph at St Andrews. Smith carried a flawless final round of 64, his second such score in the space of three days, to overturn a four-stroke deficit and win by a shot from playing partner Cameron Young. The 28-year-old's total of 20 under par surpassed the previous best for an open on the old course, set by Tiger Woods in 2000, by one, and sealed a third win of the season for the new world number two. Smith started the year with a record 34 under par winning total in the Tournament of Champions in Hawaii, following a thrilling duel with the then world number one, John Ram. Two months later, he won the prestigious Players' Championship at Sawgrass, and Sunday's victory at St Andrews means he joins Nicholas as the only man to win the Players and the Open in the same season. Nicholas, whose double was also sealed at St Andrews in 1978, posted on social media, Wow, what a back nine of golf and putting at the Open by Cameron Smith. Just fantastic. That was fun to watch. My congratulations to the champion golfer of the year, Cam Smith, on winning his first major and at no better place than the home of golf, the old course at St Andrews. Nicholas, who had been in St Andrews to be named an honorary citizen of the town, also praised the tremendous performances of runner-up Cameron Young and third-place Rory McIlroy, who had shared the 54-hole lead with Victor Hovland. Really, at McIlroy Rory played well today, but never put one put in the green, while Cam had six on his back nine alone, Nicholas added. Cam Smith shows what makes a difference in a tournament, especially a major. Who makes the putts coming down the stretch? 30 on the back nine, 64 on Sunday, unbelievable! Smith's previous best finishes in majors both came at the Masters, as he finished runner-up at Augusta National in 2020 and was third in April. In 2020, with the tournament held in November due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Smith was one shot behind Dustin Johnson after nine holes of his final round, but could only play the back nine in level par to finish five shots behind the winner. In April, Smith birdied the first two holes in the final round to cut Scotty Scheffler's lead to a single shot, but bogeyed the third and fourth, and saw any hopes extinguished with a triple bogey in the twelfth. Asked if improving mentally had been a had been crucial to making his major breakthrough, Smith said, I don't think I've changed a lot mentally. I think sometimes you get away from what you're doing and I think it's just a thing of getting back to what you know and what you know works. I've definitely been on that track a few times in my career, but I think it's just honestly belief. The players at the start of the year, with the best field in golf, to go away with the win was a really big confidence booster. I knew it wasn't going to be too long before I got one of these. I've knocked on the door, I think, maybe one too many times now. So it's nice to get it done. All the names in the claret jug, every player that's been at the top of their game has won this championship. It's pretty cool to be on there. It really hasn't sunk in yet. I don't think it will for a few weeks. It's just unreal. And that article was unattributed. From the Herald Scotland... Monday the 18th of July 2022 Sport New Rangers signing Malik Tillman keen to put himself centre stage after Bayern stint by Stefan Bianchowski Tuesday, April 26th was probably supposed to be the date which turned Malik Tillman's career around at Bayern Munich 
Having lurked in the periphery of Julian Nagelsmann's squad for some time, the young head coach walked, walked onto the club's training ground on a wet, windy day in the Bavarian capital and congratulated his team for winning the Bundesliga title with three games to spare. Now, according to the former Hoffenheim and RB Leipzig tactician, he could let some of the young guns get a shot in the limelight. We will change a bit and give one or more of the young players more chances, said the head coach in a press conference shortly after the training session. They can play more minutes at the highest level, without pressure. Mainz, Stuttgart and then Wolfsburg beckoned before the end of the season. After a ruptured ligament injury had ruled him out of the 2020-21 season, Tillman was finally back on his feet and undoubtedly licking his lips in anticipation of game time with the starting eleven. Unfortunately for the young midfielder, such an opportunity never arose. In the first of three apparent bounce games, Bayern's senior players sluggishly lost 3-1 after partying in Ibiza midweek, leading to what could only be described as a mini-crisis just days after winning the league title. Nagelsmann was furious and seemingly out of spite or sheer rage starting his strongest 11 in the two remaining games. Tillman didn't even make the matchday squad until the final game of the season, but was forced to watch the entire clash from the bench. He finished the league campaign with just 102 minutes of game time. Indeed, constant struggles for game time and recognition has been the theme of Tillman's short career to date. Coinciding with his field's attempts at Bayern, the midfielder also opted for the United States national team over Germany at the end of last season. And while USMNT coach Greg Balter may have spoken about painting a vision to convince the player to opt for the country of his father, it was yet another cold and calculated move to join a nation that wanted him over one that was struggling to offer him much at under-21 or senior level. Such desires were undoubtedly at the forefront of Tillman's mind when he chose to sign for Rangers. Although played primarily as a central midfielder, the 20-year-old's main talents lie in the final third. Often compared to Paul Pogba, Nagelsmann has at at times suggested that the player's future may lie further up the pitch. He is a top-talented forward, said the Bayern boss last December. He has incredible qualities when it comes to scoring goals, added the Bavarian tactician, before noting that the player still had some way to go in terms of tracking runners and closing down opponent players. This was perfectly evident during Tillman's time with Bayern's second team. In 15 games over the course of the 2021-22 season, the US prospect bagged four goals and four assists from a variety of positions, but undoubtedly thrived when played through the middle in what would most likely be defined as a traditional number 10. Prior to that, he played almost exclusively as a striker for the club's under-19s, scoring 15 goals in 29 games in the 2019-20 season. Indeed, it was a similar story for Tillman when he's made his way through the German national teams, national teams, youth teams, where the player found more joy in attacking roles. He is a good midfielder, a number eight for us, who can work defensively, noted Germany under-17 head coach Michael Fichtenbeiner at the 2019 European Championships, where Tillman scored one goal in three games. But he's better in attack. He has very good skills to spot the other players. It's with that in mind that Tillman makes a move to Rangers as perhaps an ideal long-term replacement to the departed Joe Aribo. Or, should Alfredo Morales follow Sergio Kitten out of the door this summer, the young American could also be tasked with playing in the box. 
He may even find some success in the wings if Ryan Kent needs a backup, or is indeed needing to be replaced entirely. Young, raw and in desperate need of approval, Tillman has bags of potential, and he may just realise it at Rangers. In that article was by Stefan Biankowski. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 18th of July 2022, from the sports section, Rangers draw Union St. Julie's in Champions League third qualifying round by Ewan Payton. Rangers have discovered their opponents for the third qualifying round of the Champions League. Giovanni Van Bronckhurst's men will face Union St. Julie's in the next round of qualifying for UEFA's top club competition. Rangers enter the tournament through the league path in the Champions League third qualifying round with the aim of progressing through to the group stage. The Ibrox club were seeded for the draw. Their potential op- opponents included FC Mitterland or AEK, Larnaca, Monaco, Sturmgratz and Union Saint-Gilles. The draw took place a short while ago at 11am today on Monday July the 18th. It was held at UEFA's headquarters in Neon, Switzerland. The first leg will be played on August the 2nd or 3rd with the return leg taking place on August the 9th. And that article was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 18th of July 2022, in the sports section, Union St. Julie's Fatville, who are Rangers Champions League opponents? By Aidan Smith. Rangers will take on Belgian side Union St. Julie's in their opening Champions League qualifier. The Europa League runners-up are due to be away from home in the first leg of the third qualifying round on August the 2nd or 3rd. The winners will progress to the playoff stage of the competition. Here is everything you need to know about the Belgian side. Union St. Julie's were formed in 1897 and currently play at the Stade Joseph Marianne, Brussels with a capacity of 9,400. Union finished runners-up in the Belgian league last season behind Club Bruges but they topped the table after the regular season of 34 matches before points were halved ahead of the six-match playoffs. They had only returned to the top flight in 2021 following a 48-year absence. Union won the most recent of their 11 Belgian titles in 1935 and played in a 9,400 capacity stadium, the Stade Joseph Marianne, in Brussels. They rounded off their pre-season programme with a 4-0 victory at Feyenoord on Saturday and kick off their domestic season this weekend. St. Julie's are now currently managed by Carol Gairides. He just recently took on the role after being assistant to Felice Matzow, who moved on to Anderlecht. A key man to look for, for, out for in the union side is Dante Vanzier. The tricky and pacey winger scored 13 goals in the league last season and provided many an assist for striker Denis Undav, who, move, who moved to Brighton in the summer. Union are also owned by Brighton chairman Tony Bloom. And that article was by Eden Smith. From the Herald, Tuesday the 29th of July, from the opinion section. Kirsty Hughes, independence still offers a way back into the EU for Scotland. This is not the most auspicious moment to consider whether the UK might ever rejoin the European Union as the unedifying, barely democratic contest for choosing the UK's next Prime Minister unfolds, Brexit has scarcely caused a ripple, 
With the cost of living crisis top of the public's concern, Brexit's continuing economic damage should be, but isn't, an issue. To stand a chance, all the Conservative leadership contenders must cleave to their hard Brexit. They must also stand by Boris Johnson's Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and the fake narrative that accompanies it. Not so much a clean start as a restated willingness to break international treaties and to lie about why from all the candidates. Labour's fear of the Brexit betrayal narrative means Sir Keir Starmer insists there's no question of the UK even going back into the EU's single market or its customs union. Yet there are activists and organisations pushing to rejoin the EU and its single market. Even the Lib Dems suggest, fairly quietly, an eventual future back in the EU. But, given Tory and Labour stances, are the only realistic hopes for rejoining the EU in Northern Ireland and Scotland via the Irish reunification and independence routes? Perhaps not. In its latest poll, YouGov found 60% thought Brexit was the wrong decision, 40% the right decision, excluding don't knows. But with the Tories focused on talking up UK-EU conflict, and with Sakir aiming for just a few tweaks to the current EU-UK trade deal, any serious political debate on rejoining the EU looks distant indeed. And crucially, rejoining the EU would be a decision for Brussels too. After the chaos and standoff of these Brexit years, a rapid UK return would not be welcomed. Watching British politics continuing decay, few would contemplate the UK back in the EU in the next 10 to 20 years, should US UK's politics ever normalise again. The hope that the UK could perhaps fairly rapidly rejoin the EU single market is a forlorn one too. It's always been a rather strange idea that a large democracy like the UK could apply all EU single market rules while having no say in them, or accept EU trade deals without a seat at the table. In the face of Brexit neuralgia, that looks even more unlikely. All this is both good and bad news for Scotland's chance of independence in the EU. Rejoining the EU is one of the core arguments for independence, from its potential economic benefits to the wider security, sustainability, cultural and political advantages too. And if there's no chance of the whole UK going back into the EU, then the only route for pro-Europeans in Scotland is indeed independence. But if England and Wales do not move closer to the EU single market, then the border between them and Scotland in an independent scenario will remain significant. Meanwhile, both Tories and Labour agree that the UK is perhaps a voluntary union, but one where there's no chance of an agreed independence referendum in the foreseeable future. This leaves the Scottish Government roots of a Holyrood-mandated referendum, if the Supreme Court agrees, or making the next gen general election a quasi-referendum. Yet Nicola Sturgeon is doubtless as aware as anyone that EU member states will be looking for an independence decision and process to be legally and constitutionally valid, which certainly for the EU means in agreement with London. But UK watchers in Brussels are not politically naive. They realise that there is a political dynamic going on here 
as the SNP moves to get another vote, one way or another, on independence. Few expect the Supreme Court to say a Holyrood-led referendum is legal, but if it did, then that would surely tick one of the EU's boxes. And if opposition parties then boycotted that referendum, this might look, from across the Channel, like another symptom of the UK's failing politics, more than a Catalonia-type scenario. The more likely scenario is that opinion on independence will be tested in the next general election by 2024. This SNP move is both bold and risky. Yet, whether opposition parties like it or not, there will be an independence campaign from now into the next election. If it comes off with more than 50% of the vote for pro-independence parties, then the EU will be watching as closely as anyone what happens next. For the strongest political impact in Scotland, the rest of the UK and across the EU, the pro-independence vote will surely need to be substantially over the 50% mark in the election. If that campaign, not least in the face of the failings and flounderings of the Tory government in Westminster, cannot raise support for independence in the EU to 55% or higher in a sustained way, both in opinion polls and at the election, then it could suggest the 50-50 standoff on the issue is set to continue. But if the independence election vote succeeds, then it will set off a debate in Scotland and England on political and democratic consequences. In Brussels, there is likely to be continuing sympathy for the goal of rejoining the EU and some concern about the breakup of the UK, plus some schadenfreude. There would, too, be close EU attention to whether a serious political dialogue or an unstable political and constitutional standoff ensues. In the end, if Scotland chooses independence, there will have to be talks and an agreement between the UK and Scotland. A unilateral declaration of independence will not cut it. But those on the Unionist side, who hope Brussels will look at a Scottish independence vote in a general election as unconstitutional and invalid, should perhaps take a long, sober look at the state of Westminster politics and at the EU's view of the UK. The EU will stand back from Scotland's constitutional choice, but if it chooses independence, the path back to the EU will be open for Scotland, in a way that it won't be in the UK for a long time to come. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. That article was by Kirsty Hughes. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.